Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. Some time back I had started a Patreon, and part of the benefits that subscribers got was a Patreon-exclusive podcast. Uh, that Patreon of mine has been closed for some time now, but there was some, what I thought, were really cool content left over that only a few people got to hear. So I'm repackaging some of the highlights from my regular podcast for you to listen to. This includes two At The Movies Film Festival episodes that gather my theological and philosophical analyses of films centered around a certain theme. The theme for this episode is Monsters and Mad Men. With that said, <laughs> let's move uh, forward to talking about The Shining. The Shining is a 1980 film directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Scatman Crothers. It's a film that uh, gets discussed a lot because of um, it's kind of unclear about what they're saying. You know, that this family is is um, staying at this hotel, uh, watching it over the winter while it's closed to kind of make sure that everything, all you know, the maintenance happens. Um, the main character, Jack Nicholson. Um, plays a character named Jack as well, Jack Torrance. Um, he was a former school teacher who'd lost his job, struggled with alcoholism, had been, um, I think, somewhat abusive uh, with his with his son, and was sort of trying to clean up his act. So, you know, as they're staying at this hotel, all these influences in this hotel and everything that had happened in the past uh, starts to kind of catch up with them. So there's this question, do, do we see this as a ghost story? Um, is it a psychological thing? You know, because as Jack is sort of descending into this madness and he's seeing these things, um, you know, is this just from his perspective? And there's also, uh, you know, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, and we'll, we'll be doing more of that. Um, there's also a scene at the very end where, you know, they showed this picture from decades before of this party that was thrown in the ballroom, and, and there's Jack Nicholson, there's Jack Torrance in the picture. Um, and so, you know, we talk about reincarnation, what is, what is all this about? And it seemed to me as I was watching it, or as I have watched it, because I've watched it a number of times, that you could definitely get out of this, I don't want to say a cultural Marxist reading, because I don't think it's entirely, you know, I think that word is being bandied about negatively, and, and often for, for some good reasons, but... Um, there's something to it, although it's also not entirely um, on the on the mark. And so, what what I sort of see this film about is, it's a film about the haunting spirit of oppression. This hotel is built on the bodies of slain Native Americans. They're saying they had to. I think it was built on. Uh, uh, they're saying on um, Indian burial ground. They had to fight Indians off and, and kill them as they were building it. Uh, Jack follows the lead of um, this sort of ghost character, uh, Grady, in seeking to murder his child uh, and his interfering wife. The leadership of the white male is, is meant to be unquestioned as, as it's presented uh, uh, by Grady to Jack, and as, as Jack sort of sees it at this point as he's kind of unraveling. And if it is questioned, those under his care can be corrected by death. A secondary protagonist is a black man, Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, uh, who likewise seeks to interfere, and he's killed by Jack after having his entire person summarized in a racial epithet. So this is the white man's burden, as Jack says, quoting Kipling's poem about the white man seeking to paternalistically take charge of the heathen races. 
this white man's burden is that he is obligated to run the world, to run his affairs, to uh, run this family, to correct uh, his children and his wife. Looking at this, this kind of narrative, it fits into one that I think is becoming more and more prevalent in our culture, where you know white heterosexual males are to blame for every social injustice, and then there's kind of a, a more, um, you know, on the other side there, you have this idea where, where white heterosexual males um, are ultimately, have ultimately been a good thing for the world. Um, the values of European Christian culture have created a society marked by freedom and justice, and outside of the West, you know, there be dragons. You have Islam, and and you have communism, and so on and so forth. And in a way, both of these narratives are true. You know, imperialism, racism, slavery, sexism, they've dehumanized various groups of people. And the white man certainly didn't invent them. They have marked much of his more recent history in particular. At the same time, the Christian values which have marked the West have also had an ameliorating effect upon these sins. White men didn't invent the institution of slavery, though they perfected some of its cruelties, but white men also fought a bloody war to end it. They've often minimized the humanity and significance of women, as most cultures unfortunately have, but their tradition of freedom and human rights given by God also made the women's rights movement possible. White men didn't invent empire, but they may have been the first ethnic group to intentionally give it up. The reality is this, those in power almost always abuse their power to some degree. This is true regardless of skin color, sex, and sexual orientation. Those who've had influence and privilege, and who to some extent still do, need to be aware of that and make room at the table for others to join. But that doesn't mean straight white men are inherently evil, or are the enemy, or that they must be destroyed or deprivileged so another group can take their place and repeat their crimes. The biblical story of humanity is this. All have sinned. Those in power commit a particular kind of sin, but that sin is the result of the lesser attributes of our nature acting upon power. If power is to be used more fairly and righteously, it has to extend a hand to others, particularly the poor and oppressed, to participate in how it's exercised. The Christian message is that there is no slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, in Christ, at the very least, so we must all live together or else fight each other continually. And that's basically the Marxist message, eternal struggle until the oppressed take control of violence and level society. And, you know, in theory, at that point, everybody's supposed to be free and equal, but, of course, what always happens is a new oppressed class is formed as the former oppressed become the oppressor. So we have to break out of the cycles of violence that Jack felt himself pulled into against his will. Jack felt that he had been to the hotel before. If, if you watch the movie, he talks about that. Uh, that is where he belonged. Um, something about it. You know, he'd know that, you know he'd never been there, but something about it felt like he belonged there. He was trapped. He was uh, predestined to find himself there committing the same acts of violence that all white men do. Or so the film seems to argue. But those cycles aren't inevitably turning forever. We can choose to remove ourselves from them, and most of us do to some extent or another. We're not better off letting the white man die so we can flee and begin fresh, but by making sure that we make room for everyone in society to participate in the kind of world that we create for ourselves. Christianity puts a lot of emphasis on breaking down these walls. It doesn't stick with one narrative completely. It's not order versus chaos as the sort of more conservative white man's burden approach uh, you know, has it, nor does it see human reality fundamentally as a struggle between oppressed and oppressor. It acknowledges that order can be good, it can also be evil, it acknowledges that oppression happens and that the oppressor will be judged by God, but it doesn't see reality through one of those lenses fundamentally. 
it sees them through Christ. All right, so now let's discuss Labyrinth. I got to see this one in the theater recently because of its nationwide revival. Uh, my wife and I took our five-year-old daughter to see it, and it's since become a favorite of hers. Uh, it's uh, made in 1986, directed by Jim Henson. And you can definitely see that when you see the, the puppetry that's used here. Uh, amazing uh, work that was done there. Um, you know, without the, the need for, you know, all this computer-generated effects. Uh, the plot, for those who haven't seen it, is that a teenage girl, Sarah, uh, who's obsessed with fantasy stories, wishes that her infant half-brother, whom she is sick of babysitting, would be taken away by the Goblin King. The Goblin King, Jareth, uh, played by David Bowie, does so. Buyer's remorse sets in, and she's given 13 hours to navigate a labyrinth and rescue young Toby, as her brother, before he turns into a goblin himself. The film is really at heart a tale of growing up. Sarah's completely self-absorbed at the beginning of the film. She longs to live in a fantasy world where an ideal man, or at least the ideal man of the 80s, uh, is obsessed with her and serves her desires, which may go part of the way to explaining his protruding crotch, which is a, you know, a feature of the film that everybody talks about in the, uh, in the tights. Anyhow, you know, the idea that, that Jareth is a sort of um, fantasy creation, um, I think, is borne out by the, the reality that he is actually put together from uh, figurines and photographs that you can see around her room as is much of the labyrinth's uh, scenery and population. Uh, one of the tests of the labyrinth is for her to decide that she wants to move forward instead of going backwards. And I think this is where we find what the real sort of heart of the movie here is and, and what's what, what it's really about. So she has to choose to accept responsibility um, by caring for her brother rather than to, you know, go back and play with her fantasy toys. Um, and this is sort of uh, done in this scene where she's like, uh, her room and all these toys or whatever are in the middle of this junkyard and it's you know all junk <laughs> um, is basically the message there now by the end of the movie something of a balance is reached I think um, between this idea of the things of childhood being junk and the things of childhood being you know all that's really important so the characters of the labyrinth you know they can't be ever present but as they tell her should you need us they'll be there uh, the struggle then, then is to hold on to the lessons and blessings of one's formative years, but to move forward. Not to be stuck always in the past, but take on responsibility in adulthood joyfully. There may be a lesson here for the nostalgia obsessed as well. Whether you can't bear to see a Star Wars film made that doesn't follow the same pattern and thus evoke the same childhood feelings of the original trilogy, or if you long for a time when you believe America was great, even if not for a number of minority groups, or even if you just liked Ready Player One. We need to be able to get on with our lives and build them upon things of substance. You may think they don't make something or other like they used to, but there's nothing new under the sun. What made your childhood special was your sense of wonder. So going back and watching episodes of Rocco's Modern Life on Nickelodeon may help you to get that back to some extent, but it isn't the only way. And it can't compare to the joy of seeing your children grow and learn, or of working hard to love your spouse and make your marriage successful. But hey, it'll be there, should you need it. Anyway, I want to go on now to talk about a film, The Dark Knight. If, if you listen to the regular Kansas Hermes podcast, you'll know that I've talked about Batman versus Superman on the Kansas Hermes at the Movies podcast. 
with my friends uh, Jackson Farrell and Ben Dublet. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, these are, these Batman uh, movies have a lot of the same, you know, writers and people connected with them. And they all, um, interestingly enough, pull from um, biblical stuff, literature, all these other, uh, all these allusions to uh, these kind of staples of our uh, of Western literature. And a lot of people, I think, miss that. But in The Dark Knight, we have um, a pretty interesting Christian parallel here. So, as you might recall, Harvey Dent is supposed to be this sort of hope of Gotham. He's the he's the DA who's going to take down the mob and, and all the criminals. He's squeaky clean. Um, you know, he has integrity. And so, of course, the Joker, being who he is, um, you know, he, you know, isn't really interested in, in gaining anything for himself because... You know, I think he sort of is a nihilist. He knows it's not going to work out anyway for him. But what he'd like to try to do is take down as many people as he can, and particularly Dent, because Dent is somebody who represents um, all these good things. Uh, he represents the goodness of humanity that that Joker wants to take down. And of course, there is a connection here, of course, to the Bible. So Joker is a Satan figure. He is interested only in corrupting and bringing down others, which means Harvey Dent is man or Adam. He actually is supposed to represent what's good about Gotham. He's the perfect man. He's the ideal man. And so when Joker comes in and tempts him and mars him, he makes him wicked. He twists him, he corrupts him, he makes him evil. And so what's interesting then, of course, is that Batman steps in. Batman um, steps in and takes the blame for what Harvey Dent has done. And the result of that is that Gotham has this hero figure still to hold on to. Because Batman takes on Adam, or humanity's sins, uh, Dent's sins. <laughs> humanity can live, they can go forward, they can... Um, have this sort of hope and, and a belief that they, they can be good and that, that the world can be good because of what Batman has done. And so, of course, then Batman is the Christ figure. He is the substitute. He has um, atoned, so to speak, for dense sins by placing them upon himself. And now let's make an awkward segue into discussing The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises completes director Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. The plot hinges upon villain Bane's takeover of Gotham for the purpose of destroying it, on the pretense that he's a liberator giving Gotham back to the people in an anti-rich uprising. This event pulls Batman out of retirement, forcing him to do something to save his city. Now, The Dark Knight Rises you know, was in development for a while, but it was released at the tail end of the Occupy Wall Street movement's popularity. Uh, Occupy Wall Street, um, as <laughs> some of you folks should remember, I would think, uh, was a generally uh, strongly left-leaning movement that reacted against a few Americans holding much of the country's wealth. Uh, those involved in the protest called themselves the 99%. Um, although, you know, compared to the rest of the world's wealth distribution, most of them had uh, more in common with the wealthy 1%. And Anyway, but uh, that aside, many of the concerns they raised were quite valid, though some of the more extreme rhetoric was at times quite troubling. And um, 
whether Nolan had his finger on the pulse of this movement or, you know, any of that stuff that they were saying or doing ended up in the film, I'm not sure about that. Uh, what I will say is that there are there's definitely a movement in this film that matches the rhetoric of Occupy Wall Street, although it, it admittedly matches the rhetoric of uh, a great number of, uh, you know, revolutionary movements that, that we've had um, in the past, and in particular, the French Revolution, which seems to be a... Uh, a strong influence here. The Dark Knight Rises actually places some of the Occupy Wall Street rhetoric into the mouth of Selena Kyle or Catwoman. Um, Kyle aligns herself with Bane against those in power in Gotham who she views as greedy and selfish, including ironically Bruce Wayne. Um, at first, she almost seems to view Bane as a force of retributive justice, but it doesn't take long for her to see how volatile and twisted he is. After Bane kills the rich and, quote, gives Gotham back to the people, end quote, including redistributing their property, Kyle, while looking through what was once a wealthy person's home, woefully remarks to her friend, this is someone's home, <laughs> to which her friend responds, no, it's everyone's home. This is, you know, this is what you wanted. This is, this is what the whole thing was about. Similarly, when Bane occupies Wall Street, so to speak, um, because he actually does go into the, the Gotham Financial District, uh, some police seem less than enthralled about stopping him. When it's remarked that he's messing with everyone's money, uh, one cop says, well, my money's under my pillow, suggesting he has no sympathy for the rich because they live more comfortably. Of course, he fails to understand that the economy is an interconnected web, and the loss of a, at least relatively, free market harms everyone, and he's chastised for it. Point is, if Wall Street falls, the money under his pillow won't be worth anything. Bane is not only no better than the power-hungry capitalist that Kyle railed against, he's far worse, he's, he's more destructive. The implication is that one can't be too careful when jumping on political bandwagons. Just because someone is against the old order doesn't mean they can be trusted to bring a better new order. Political extremism is always dangerous, no matter what side of the left-right spectrum it's on. The point seems to be driven home by plot points with historical parallels in, in the French Revolution. Uh, this is an event in history where the king and many aristocrats were killed by the use of the guillotine, the revolution's most terrifying symbol, and power was given allegedly to the people, which is to say to anti-aristocratic, anti-religious tyrants who claim to represent the rights of all men. Their concerns about the privilege of the powerful were quite valid but what they inherited through the tools of violent oppression were no better. One key example of The Dark Knight Rises paralleling the French Revolution deals with the iconic moment par excellence of the revolution, the storming of the Bastille prison. This is matched in The Dark Knight Rises by Bane storming Blackgate prison and releasing the prisoners. In both instances, it was claimed to be an act of liberation against the oppressive jailers who were at the head of society. Other similarities include the leaders of the New Order. In The Dark Knight Rises, they are seated as judge on ridiculous high benches. During the French Revolution, the Montagnards, and I probably pronounced that incorrectly, but it means mountain men, were named for the high benches from which they declared the fates of the formerly rich and powerful. Also of note is that the French New Order's convention began meeting in a tennis court. 
whereas Bane announces the New Order in a football stadium. All of these parallels in The Dark Knight Rises point to the fact that the threat of political extremism isn't theoretical. It's a genuine danger. It's happened before. Other parallels are less specific, such as when Bane tears up a picture of Harvey Dent in front of the crowds, claiming it's a false idol. This brings to remembrance the destruction of places of worship by the anti-religious French revolutionaries. Bane claims that he's given Gotham back to the people, but then rules over it far more despotically than the capitalists and cops had before, demanding the deaths of the rich and powerful in the name of freedom. Bane is the French Robespierre, the Russian Lenin, the Chinese Mao. He claims to represent the people, and because his tyrannical approach looks different than that of the previous corrupt forces, he is mistakenly hailed as a savior. However, his impact is in hindsight only detrimental to freedom, prosperity, and human life. The Dark Knight Rises also seems to pull from fictional portrayals of the French Revolution, such as Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. This becomes clear at the end of the film when Commissioner Gordon reads an apt selection from it. The Dark Knight Rises is a more complicated film than one might suspect at first glance. Sure, it's a superhero movie, and some of its events seem improbable, but the points it illustrates are incredibly significant for our lives and have a lot more to do with historical and contemporary reality than we would be expected to think. We have to live together, wealthy, poor, powerful, underprivileged, and our desire should be to make a more just and inclusive society instead of trying to take power back and become the oppressor. And now, let's talk about Clifford. Clifford is a 1994 comedy film. Actually, it was, I think, originally made in 1990, but uh, the studio that had made it was struggling uh, financially, so it didn't get released till four years later. Uh, starring Martin Short, Charles Grodin, Mary Steenburgen, and Dabney Coleman. Uh, Martin Short, who, uh, you know, the comedian, if you're not placing him, little guy, <laughs> aptly named, uh, plays Clifford, a 10-year-old boy motivated by selfish gratification even at the expense of others, including his unwitting uncle, played by Grodin, whose life he ruins after uh, the uncle fails to live up to his promise to take young Clifford to the theme park Dinosaur World. And if, if you're not really familiar with Sh Short's work, he, he is an adult at this time, so he is an adult playing a 10-year-old boy, <laughs> um, which makes, I think, some elements of the film um, easier to... Swallow, I guess, because Clifford is just this terrible kid um, who, you know, his parents and his uncle sort of start to hate him, and um, some of the things that the interactions that happen. If this would be, this you know, Clifford had been played by a young boy, it probably would have seemed, um, you know, more reprehensible uh, <laughs> watching some of the interactions. But by by having him played by an adult, it somehow takes the edge off. Which I, maybe that was part of the intention here, but. Anyway, after Clifford uh, causes his uncle to lose his job, a romantic relationship, and has him arrested under false pretenses, Grodin's character loses control, takes Clifford to Dinosaur World in the middle of the night, and puts him on a roller coaster that he wanted to ride at full speed. The coaster breaks down, and Uncle Martin has to make a choice about whether to save young Clifford's life. Uncle Martin! I'm thinking it over! Please, I'm scared. Well, I'm scared of what might happen if I save you. I mean, maybe I should do mankind a tremendous favor and let that dinosaur eat you. 
I mean, who knows what horrors you might unleash? What if you got your hands on some plutonium? I just made the best nuclear bomb in the whole wide world! <laughs> Sorry. No, no, Clifford, don't, don't. I, I don't want to hug you. I, I can't imagine anyone ever wanting to hug you. I really am sorry. You really are sorry? You know, sorrow is, is a human emotion. And as we know, you're not a human boy. You're just this, this destructive thing. Eventually, everyone just gets to hate you. So why am I talking about this, this weird movie on a theology podcast? Because despite its eccentricities and extremes, it's actually a film about grace. Uncle Martin chooses to save Clifford's life after Clifford has already destroyed his. This choice isn't one that he makes easily from a place of sincere feeling for Clifford. In point of fact, Martin despises Clifford and fears that he will one day grow up to destroy the lives of others on his path to self-gratification. No, it's actually an act of mercy, and it's this act of mercy that turns Clifford's life around. Hearing his Uncle Martin speak so bluntly about how wicked Clifford is, but choosing to save his life anyway, makes Clifford want to be a better person. This experience of grace is amplified when Uncle Martin formally forgives Clifford by inviting him to his wedding. Forgiveness, grace, makes Clifford want to be a better person. In fact, the, the filmmakers really run this home by, uh, um, with this interesting, you know, fairly transparent plot twist, and that's that young Clifford grows up to be a Catholic priest who looks after troubled orphans. So there's a moral tale here, but also one of grace. The moral lesson is summed up by Clifford thusly, quote, if you destroy everyone in the way of your dreams, you will end up alone with no dreams at all, end quote. But thankfully, that isn't the only lesson of this quirky film. There's also a lesson about redemption. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>